It was really just a, an experiment. I mean, so much of GitHub was just playing around in the early days, being like, what can we do? Like, what interesting new things can we do to reduce friction for people to put code online and share it and work on it together? And we all loved open source. We've been using open source for years. I loved building open source. It got me to where I am today and where I was then. And just this idea that you could give back in these ways felt really satisfying. You are listening to The Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for open source projects with a focus on CNCF sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish The Kubelist Newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable software vendors such as HashiCorp, Puppet, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or you would like to suggest a project, find us on Twitter at readkublist. Finally, sign up for the Kublist newsletter and read previous issues at kublist.com. On this episode of the podcast, Benji and I were joined by Tom Preston Warner. This is a special episode, not directly related to a CNCF project, but instead really looking at the origins of some of the technology we use today in the community. Tom was a founder of GitHub and starts out talking about some of the origins and the creation of GitHub. He explains that it came from a side project and that he always has a side project. The first half of the episode is really about the origins of GitHub and was really interesting to hear. We then move on to briefly talk about some of Tom's other open source projects, including Jekyll, Semver, and now Redwood JS. Tom wraps up talking about what he's working on today, including investing in climate tech, where he describes a couple of really great projects he's backing. Hi again, and welcome to a special episode of the Kubeless Podcast. While we normally talk about a project in the CNCF ecosystem, today we're going to drift a little like we do sometimes. Uh, with us today, we have Tom Preston Warner, co-founder of GitHub and a lot more. Tom is here because he has a ton of experience building and shipping open source software. Welcome, Tom. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. Great. Great to have you. And of course, Benji's here. Welcome, Benji. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tom. Uh, this is the first episode we're recording in the new year. Very excited uh, to get Tom on here and ask all kinds of questions about all kinds of things. Every time Mark talks about drifting, I keep thinking about Tokyo Drift, so I'm just going to make a Tokyo Drift reference. <laughs> all right, so let's get started. Um, so look, Tom, uh, for those that don't know, you're one of the co-founders of GitHub, and I, I think that the way that, that I look at, at all of the CNCF and all of Kubernetes and Docker and so on and so forth is at the core, they're open source projects, and really the community um, that was built around those projects, specifically Kubernetes and, and CNCF, um, is is its strong suit. I think I think everyone would agree with that. But underneath that is GitHub and that and Git and and all this stuff. And and you were a huge part of creating that. So I just love to hear like how did it start? Like let's just get started. Like what were you doing? Why did you start GitHub? And and how did how did that get going? Yeah, the ideas for GitHub really came out of my experiences at a startup called. Power set, which was what brought me up to San Francisco. I was in San Diego before that. So I had some friends in the Ruby community that had come up here and gotten jobs at this company, Power Set, which is trying to be a better search engine uh, and fight Google. Turns out that's a, that's a hard fight to fight. Um, but it got me to San Francisco, which was awesome. And in that company, uh, I worked with a fellow uh, programmer named Dave Farum, who 
was always on the cutting edge of everything. And so he would introduce me to new technologies. And one of those was Git. He came across Git as a version control system. We were using Subversion, a power set. And so we started noodling around with it and playing with it and realized how great the branching and merging was compared to Subversion, which was not very good. I mean, better than CVS, if you ever use that, but much better than than all of them. And the only problem was that it was really awkward to set up and use. Like you had to create, uh, you had to have a Linux server and create user accounts. And then they, you know, you'd log into that and you could transfer around commits to each other through these user accounts. And there was no real web product to do any of this. There were lots of things around for subversion and, and we, you would use those and they were okay for subversion. Sorry, Tom, real quick, not to interrupt you, but what year was this? What, what year are we talking about? This is like 2006, 2007. Okay, so super early days. The boom, the first bust had happened. You move up to San Francisco, and you're like, I need source control. Um, and you found Git. Um, and for those of us that don't know, um, do you know, Tom, where did Git come from? Git comes from Linus Torvalds, who created it because they were unsatisfied with, I believe, BitKeeper, which they were trying to use, and they started trying to charge money uh, to the Linux project. Because they, I mean, the Linux kernel project is huge and they had certain needs and BitKeeper was meeting them, but then there, there was some falling out. And so they, uh, Linus got fed up and one night sat down and hacked out what became Git, I believe, right? He had these very basic kind of concepts around what a commit was and how commits are connected to each other. It was this directed graph, like really beautiful, simple stuff and created a couple of command line tools to do it. And I think it was pretty difficult to use, but it got the job done. And then that is the the origins of Git was from that dissatisfaction. Of course, it always is. It always is from some dissatisfaction, yeah. Indeed, indeed it always is, yes. All right, so, so you find Git, um, and then what happens? So we're using it internally and then pushing to subversion. So we'd like work on it together. Dave and I would work on the project that we were working on, sort of secretly using Git. And then still interfacing with Subversion because you could kind of have the two working at the same time. And we're just loving it. And so I was sitting there thinking, like, why is there not an easier way to use Git? Like, why is there not, you know, I'm a web programmer. That's what that's, was my job at PowerSet was to build web stuff. I come from a Ruby on Rails background. So I'd been doing a lot of that prior and thought, you know, I have the skills to make a website that makes it easy to to do Git, to share Git repositories between people. And you could sign up like you do normally on accounts, like on modern websites in 2007. Let's create an account, be able to push and pull your repositories. Like it didn't seem like a, a super challenging thing to do. And it made a lot of sense to me because Git was just so obviously superior to Subversion. Subversion was not awesome. And Git was awesome, but too hard to use. And so that's really where the, the idea came from. And it was not a lot more complicated than that. It was like, hey, let's make this new technology easier to use. So there's this existing technology. It's the oldest story in the book. Like, let's make it easy. Um, so did you start working on GitHub internally at that company? Or did was it like a side project? It was a side project. So I'd do my eight hours at PowerSet, and then I'd go home, and I'd like program for another eight hours on GitHub. And it was, I was new to San Francisco, so I didn't know a lot of people and I wasn't going out. I'd, I'd go mountain biking on the weekends and that was about it. So I spent my time working on, on GitHub and then I started to rope other people into it. And then, you know, we started working on it together 
on the side and we were all just wherever we were, we're in San Francisco. And that's kind of how we built up the initial group of people that that kind of brought the the initial version out. And we had an initial version out after about six months of no, three months. It was really fast. Like we hacked out just like the the barest minimum of what you could do. Sign up, push a repository, browse the code. That was pretty much it. We had that out after a couple of months. Yeah. I was gonna say that's interesting. Browse the code was in there in that initial first version. It wasn't just like a backend that sits on a Linux server somewhere that you can get clone and get push and and in and, and everything too, but it was like a, the web UI was a key part of it. Yeah, I mean that seemed like table stakes. There were the existing products that worked for subversion had that. So it was like, well, they gotta do some of the basic things, you know, and that's if you want to share with other people. You want to be able to, to send open source repositories to other people so they can look at it. It's a lot easier if you can just look at the code online, right? And then see if you're interested in it or not. And then you might get involved. So that was always there from the very beginning. I actually worked on mostly the backend stuff. So I worked on the, the Ruby code that would let Ruby on Rails access the Git repositories on disk. That was a piece of open source software called Grit because it's Git with an R in it, because it was written in Ruby. So it was called Grit, because I'm very clever at naming things. Very clever, I love it. That was, so that was great. So I spent my time doing that, and then I had the other people that were helping me with the with the project that came on, Chris Wanstroth especially, were working on the Ruby on Rails front-end part. So I was doing kind of the back-end, uh, and Chris was doing the more of the front-end. So when you started this thing, it was kind of like a need at a, at a private company, PowerSet, but was it always like this is going to be this open source, like this is the place where everything open source should live? Um, or did that develop? Or was that, it sounds like you were thinking about that from the very beginning. Yeah. So, one thing that I wanted to make sure that GitHub had was a business model. Because prior to that, before and before PowerSet, I had done Gravatar, which is like the, the avatars that, that kind of work everywhere and is owned by automatic now WordPress, right? That's like WordPress's avatar system. So, I had built that. And it was costing me a ton of money and just a huge emotional drain when it when it would go down and I didn't have a way to monetize it or couldn't think of one because I just I don't I didn't have any skills to do anything but like write software back then. And so I eventually sold that to Automatic around that same time. And that's really like freeing that up allowed me to spend time on GitHub. So GitHub was like my next side project. I always have a side project. There's always something that I'm doing as my main thing, and then there's always something I'm doing on the side to explore personal interests. And so GitHub became that side project. And it was it was great because I thought there's a clear business model here. And it's that if you put your code up here and it's open source, then you could use GitHub for free. Because that's great marketing. Then you know you like it gives back to the ecosystem. It all lined up and made sense. But the business model is if you want your code to be private, then you will pay us for that. And you know, and who wants their code to be private? Businesses. And so it made total sense. And so that was built in from the very beginning was the idea that it'd be free for open source. It would cost money if you had private repositories. I mean, you're you're saying you're saying that like it's a small thing, but like I, there's massive, massive industries that are completely copying that idea. I mean, we kind of are doing that at Shipyard. I know I'm just saying like that. So you had that insight before you even wrote your first, well, at the beginning of writing your first lines of code even? Because like I don't think that existed before GitHub, right? Yeah, I mean, may, maybe not. I, it just, I don't remember it being like a decision that we made. It just felt right. Like, yeah, of course this is how it should work. I don't know if that was, I'm trying to remember if there were other systems that did 
that because there was there was a group called ENTP that did uh, so, uh, some kind of a subversion browsing piece of software that we took some inspiration from, and I can't remember what their business how they how they did their business model. I, so I can't claim that we like invented that as a thing, but it just seemed very natural to us that that would be like yeah of course like why would you like open source people aren't going to pay you to host their code so like why would you try and businesses are happy to pay for things that are valuable to them so let's just do it that way and see if it works and 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 that gets you know you need content on a site for anyone to care uh and so that was like all right well if it's a free for open source then maybe people will use it well i mean just listening to the story so far i'm just like it's funny because i'm just like wow, all these massive things that have shaped our industry all were just decisions that were just obviously very logical, but at the time, like they were pretty revolutionary. So just not, not, not to give you too much credit, but I think it's really cool that you kind of just put all these pieces together and it sounds like a natural thing that was happening. Yeah, I mean, some of it too was a reaction to the existing open source repositories like SourceForge and Google Code, which we were very frustrated with because SourceForge there was a single top-level namespace for projects. So if you wanted to put a project on SourceForge, they were like, okay, here's how it's going to work. You're going to make a request for a name, and then we're going to approve or reject it, which I just thought was the dumbest thing I could possibly imagine. It's like, really? Like, I want to put up my project, and I have to get permission from you to share that with other people? Like, it just was ridiculous. And then Google Code was much better, and so a lot of people were using that for their open source code, and it was subversion only, of course. But they enforced very strict license requirements. Like, you had to have an open source license to put your code on uh, Google Code, if I recall. And, and it was also, I'm trying to remember how it was structured. I can't even remember. But it was frustrating. Like, these things were barriers. It's like, why do I, like, why should you care with what license there is? Like, if you don't put a license on your code, like, who cares? It's not open source, but like, whatever. If you want other people to be able to look at it, like why not and share it? I don't know. Figure out license stuff later. It just felt overly burdensome and overly like like why like why are all these things necessary? It's like conflating the the the, the concept of like hosting code with like what you're actually going to put in there it didn't make sense. Right. It was sort of enforcing these opinions that I I didn't think were necessary, and so that really is where the namespacing by user came for GitHub, where it's like you know everything is username slash repo name or you know org name slash repo name and that i think is one of the most impactful and powerful decisions that we made at github of all of them because that meant that everyone could put up any code that they wanted in their own little private space and it could be code that people cared about it could be code that nobody cared about and everyone you could you know i could name something whatever and you could name something whatever there would be no collisions and it just really made it possible for people to think that sharing any code was great, that it didn't have to be special, like SourceForge wanted your project to be special enough to consume a top-level namespace, or Google Code wanted it to be like a real legitimate project with a real license and whatever. Like on GitHub, it was like, I don't know, you got a snippet of code, put it up. And that's where Gist came from as well, really, was an even further evolution of that idea, which is like, don't even make a repo, just paste a file, and guess what? Now it's a Git repository, and it has versioning, and and like, there is no ceremony to your code if you don't want there to be. When did just actually, when did you guys roll that out? I remember it being a big deal, but I don't remember when that was exactly. 
it was pretty early. It was within the first two years for sure. And it's the project that that Scott Chacon came on, one of the co-founders. We brought him on to kind of to work on that because he was the like none of us were Git experts. Like we were like Git newbies. Like we barely knew what we were doing. I mean, I knew a lot from having to implement the code necessary to read stuff off of the file system. But as far as it's, it's kind of more advanced Git usage, Scott was the one that knew. And he was in the Ruby community, and we knew him through meetups. And he was working at a company where they were using Git as a transfer mechanism to get payloads of like video content out. He worked at a company that was doing, you know, like when you go to the mall and there's a projector screen and then it projects down on the floor and there's like soccer balls and you like interact with it and kick them around. So he was working at a startup that did that kind of stuff. And they needed to deliver content to all of these different setups to deliver new content. And because bandwidth was still quite expensive back then and you were delivering maybe a fair amount of of data, they would use Git to dedupe things and make the smallest possible deliverable kind of bundle to uh, to these various installations. So he knew Git really well. So we're like, hey, Scott, you're like one of the only people that we know that actually knows Git super well. Could you come and implement this thing for us called Gist to see if you like work well with our team. And this was, you know, this was within the first, maybe it was earlier than that, because he came on really early within the first like eight months or something. So maybe it was within the first, must have been within the first year that we were working on Gist. Yeah, maybe I, I just remember when I found out about Gist is actually what I'm talking about. And I was really excited when I found out about Gist, maybe is really what I'm referring to. Because I, I don't think it was right at the beginning when I found out about that. So, but yeah, but the, the taking that, making things accessible and using Git in this, in this way, and it's just like, it, it's not magic, it's, it's source control. Um, has always been one of the things that I've noticed and loved about GitHub personally. Yeah, and it was it was showing off the strengths of Git that it's it's so lightweight that you could make every paste a Git repository. Like it just I think blew people's minds being like, oh wow, like that's really neat. Like you can do that. Like that's not overly burdensome to do on the server side to like make every single one of these pasted files a full git repository and it's really you know the overhead of a git repository is extremely minimal i was also upset with some there was you know like the the paste bin sites of the day i was like frustrated with all of them and we're like you know what we're just going to crush them all by implementing this thing <laughs> that was the that was the dream and it worked pretty well actually but it was it was really just a an experiment i mean so much of github was just playing around in the early days being like what can we do like what interesting new things can we do to reduce friction for people to put code online and share it and work on it together. And we all loved open source. We'd been using open source for years and loved it. I loved building open source. It got me to where I am today and where I was then. And just this idea that you could give back in these ways felt really satisfying. Tom, I want to go off on a, on a branch for a second here because you, you were just talking about like, you know, you love open source and these other problems that were interesting that you wanted to solve. So in addition to GitHub, there's a ton of other open source projects that you've created, right? There's Semver, Tomel, Gravatar, you mentioned earlier, Jekyll. Um, I'm sure I missed like as many as I named. Like what, what, what else there? Can you like, I'd love to hear more and then like understand kind of the origins. Did they come out of problems that you were solving at GitHub and you were like, oh no, I can do this better if we actually just had a better, I don't know, with Tomel, right? A better like DSL to specify, you know, a, a new language. Right. I mean, they all came out of various frustrations or needs. The first open source project I ever worked on was called Chronic and it was a time parsing library for Ruby. There was 37 signals, of course, the, you know, the, the people that make Ruby on Rails. 
they have a product called Basecamp. And in it, it, they had this cool feature where you could kind of write in natural language when you wanted a calendar item to be. And I thought that was really neat and I wanted it for something I was doing. And I was like, how hard can it be to write a natural language time parsing library in Ruby? Like that would be an interesting challenge. It seems solvable. So I sat down and I was like, all right, what are all the different ways that you can say a time? Like, okay, next Tuesday or three Tuesdays from now or 6 p.m. last Wednesday you know, there's a million different ways that you can say these things. So I wrote down like every example I could think of of how to do that and then categorize them as far as like structurally, how are they different? And then I wrote this parser for those and constructed a time from that. And it was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot about Ruby in doing it. And then I showed that off at the local Ruby meetup in San Diego where I'd, where I'd go for the Ruby meetup, SD, it was called SD Ruby. And it was just, I loved it. It was amazing. It was like the best of programming, the best of like the, the quintessential, like if you love programming, like that's the kind of thing to me that was like pure joy. It's just like you have this abstract problem and you figure it out and then you write the code to make it work. And then you share that code freely with everyone and then talk to people about it. And then other people start using it. And it's just, it was, it was amazing. So that was kind of how I started my open source journey. And that was a really great project for that. And it just came out of a, a need. And the great thing about new languages, when new languages come out, there's like no libraries. And so you can come in and be like, I'm going to write the library that does random thing X. And you get to do that. And then you get to become known for doing that. And you get the experience of doing it and the experience of creating an open source project and sharing it and managing it, and leading it. And there's so much that can be learned on that open source journey that no one has to give you permission to do. You just decide to do it and you go do it. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And it's like, there's other opportunities, not just when a new language comes out, but like, you know, big platform shifts, you know, Kubernetes, you know, we talk a lot about Kubernetes on the podcast. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to like take problems that, you know, were solved, but aren't really good in a Kubernetes ecosystem and, and reinvent them. Or coming back to the language thing, there's, you know, I think some of that's happening right now around Rust. I don't know, you know, Tom, if you've, like, if you're still writing primarily Ruby or if you're using other languages, like, yeah, I mean, where, where else are you seeing that innovation happening right now? Yeah, I spend most of my time writing JavaScript these days, actually. I still love Ruby, don't get me wrong. And I'm doing some, some electronics, some embedded electronic stuff. So I'm writing some C++, which is weird. Yeah, I think it can be it can be anything where there's a a tide coming in that changes the whole industry. Like there's always opportunities. There's always things that are missing. There's always the the beginnings. Like you can look right now and say, okay, well, what are those what are those places? Let's say a couple of years ago it was maybe the world of crypto, which I have many misgivings about. But there was like this open territory, completely blank, a blank canvas to go into and be like, this part of this is terrible. So let me write something. Let me come up with an idea. You know, like I know the pain. If you work on something, you know the pain that's there, and then you write something to solve the pain. And that, to me, has always been the process, and that's always where there's opportunity. Where is the pain today? Maybe it's in AI. There's so many cool opportunities there, and things are still really challenging to do, and there's still all kinds of issues with the way that we do AI. And so there's tons of opportunity there, you know, there's in the world of VR and AR, 
there, like, is that going to go somewhere? I don't know, but there's a lot of challenges and opportunities in that world as well. And in, in you know, any of this infrastructure stuff, like we're still trying to figure out infrastructure in general, yeah. you know, and in the Kubernetes world, you know, you, you, you see all the jokes about how complex it is. Of course, there's like mountains of improvements and, and things that can be done in that world. So to me, it's always embed yourself in a thing, figure out where it hurts and then write something to solve that pain. Pretty sage advice, I think. All right, so I want to bring it back a little bit to the GitHub origin story because I still I have questions still. So you're working on on this project, this side project. When did you decide with your co-founders like let's let's go do let's go do this as a full-time a full-time thing? Like what were the signals? Like what what happened that you were like, "Okay, it's time." So we we did our public launch I think at about the 6-month mark. And that's when we started letting people sign up freely. We had like a closed, like a private beta, or you, it was the Gmail launch thing where it's like, all right, everybody who gets uh, who gets in gets five invites, and then you can set out invites, and then everyone's asking for invites. Worked really well. So we opened up the doors publicly. I think it was six. It was either six or nine months in. But at that point, we had the business model embedded in it already. So everything was free up to that point. And then after that point, we said, okay. Now you're going to pay for private repositories, and here's a couple of like private, pl- you know, plans. It was like you can have three private repositories for seven dollars a month, and then there were a couple more plans higher than that. And then on that first day that we started charging, people started paying, people signed up, and even before that, people were like, "Hey, can I pay for this? Because this is awesome, and I want to, I want this to be around and keep using this, and I get value, so I want to pay you." So people were asking to pay for it before we had even launched, which was amazing. So all of these were signs that, hey, like there's something here. Like, let's keep going and see how far this thing can go because it seems like it's working. And we were using it to build GitHub, right? From the very beginning, we used GitHub to build GitHub. So we were experiencing the pain of using the system itself, the dog fooding. That's maybe the most important thing you can ever do with any project you're working on is to is to dog food it, to make sure that you are using it and experiencing it every day so you know exactly where the where it sucks at that point i think we're all like yeah like let's keep going and then it was maybe at the nine month mark of working on it then a few months later that we uh, three to six months after that we had we were making enough money that we could kind of stop doing what we were doing and and work on it and i was still working at powerset powerset got acquired by microsoft and rolled some of that technology got rolled into Bing, and so I, GitHub was already we were already doing okay with GitHub, and so I was like, I'm gonna quit PowerSet at the acquisition. So I never became a Microsoft employee, but it kind of lined up right there. And I was like, I'm gonna go do GitHub full time, and I have a blog post about this. You can go read that. It's called I think why I gave up $300,000 to go full-time on GitHub or something. Because they were offering me over over some number of years, three years or something, 300 grand to go work at Microsoft. And I was like, I mean, that was a hard decision. Like, that's, a, that's not nothing. That's a good chunk of money. And this is like 15 years ago. But, but GitHub was so promising. It was like, I, I, I want to work for myself. I want to do this. Like, there's opportunity here. So it was a gamble. But it wasn't that much of a gamble because it was already making money. Right. And so, but, but you saw it working, the signals were coming in, you, you took the dive and then obviously you just kept, you just kept plugging away. Did you guys not ever raise money? Did you guys ever raise money from VCs for GitHub or no? Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But not, not at the beginning. You guys were just a bootstrapped company, dog fooding, 
you know, now all this stuff is a little cliche, but like you guys innovated on a lot of that. So I guess not all of it, but a bunch of it, it's like, is pretty cool. So you're working at GitHub, you have some co-founders, you guys kind of start going, I don't know, when did, when did you start going parabolic, I guess is my next question. Well, I don't know that we ever did, honestly. Like, here's the weird thing is that our user growth was never exponential like you see some companies where it's just like takes off and it's like insane. It was always fairly linear. Like it was a, I mean, there was some curve, obviously it wasn't, you know, in the earliest days, the, it, it did it, the slope increase, but it wasn't like you sometimes see where it's just like overnight, like wham, you're just, the growth rates go through the roof. It was always more steady. And I think that's because we didn't take venture capital. We never felt super pressured to go out and do like giant marketing campaigns or do the kinds of things that a lot of startups today do because you have a runway and a limited timeline. Like we were profitable. Like we didn't have to do anything that we didn't want to do. We only hired when we had enough money to hire more people, except for in the very, there was once early on for our first kind of two main hires that we did at the same time, we, we kind of stretched and went unprofitable for a couple of months. But we were growing quickly enough, revenue-wise, that we could hire when we had the money to hire. So we tried to stay profitable. And that was true up until we took money. And that was four or five years in that we took the first outside money from Andreessen Horowitz. And it was it was just very satisfying to be fully in control of our destinies. It was something that I'd always wanted, that kind of freedom. I think we all did. And we tried to really do things from first principles. Like we, we tried to think through everything from scratch, maybe too much <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but you don't, you know, you don't know where the line is until you cross it. So I think there were occasions where we crossed the line into kind of ridiculous, like the thing, you know, for, as an outsider, you'd look at it. And of course, our, you know, the VCs would come in and we'd tell them how we were doing things. And they're like, what, what, what do you, what? No, you can't, you can't do, no. We'd be like, this is what we're doing, man. <laughs> get on board or get out of our way. You know, I mean, it, it was, things were working well enough that we could really, that we were maybe a little cocky about it, maybe a lot cocky about it, but I don't know. It was awesome. Like we really focused on making a great company and, and building an environment that people wanted to work in. You know, we wanted to build a company where we would have wanted to work as employees. We'd all worked other places and all had bad experiences working other places. And we wanted to make something different. And I think we succeeded in that. I mean, I from from the outside looking in, I, I can I I can concur with that uh, assessment. Um, I do like how you would tell them get her done, or did you use like get <laughs> like, or did you say get? I probably spelled it with an I. No, I wouldn't. Do that. That's that's insane. Uh, <laughs> so okay, so four or five years before you took any outside investment. So I mean, the last big piece before we maybe move on to some of the newer stuff you're doing. When did big projects start moving their source code onto GitHub? And like, when were you like, what was like the first holy, holy bleep moment that you had, <laughs> you know, where it's just like, wow, like Linux is on here or like whatever it was. Well, Linux was never and probably will never be on. Right. Sorry. GitHub. Sorry. Yeah. I actually knew that one. Sorry about that. But. They love the mailing list. I could tell you stories about trying to contribute to, to get, get, get core via the, the, the get mailing list, <laughs> man. Talk about stress. You're like. You go over, you like craft your email that's your your pull request via the mailing list and you go over it like 37 times because you don't want to get like yelled at by these like super hardcore, they're like, they're all like Linux core kind of people, the Git team. Anyway, 
that's another story. But uh, the first big project that came over was Ruby on Rails. The first big one. There was there was Merb. Merb was a kind of early Ruby framework that had some notoriety that came over fairly early. That was being led by this guy, Yehuda Katz, who's amazing in the Ruby community. And he was actually user number four on GitHub. So he was there from the very, you know, it was like me and Chris and PJ and then Yehuda for some reason was user number four, which is always hilarious because we had we would have these bugs in the early days of GitHub where some random commit would show as being authored by Yehuda, even though he didn't have permission on the repository or anything. It's like, how, why, why was, why is it showing Yehuda as the author of this commit? Like this, is this a security issue? Is this like, what is going on here? It turns out that in Ruby, every object has an ID, even the nil object has an ID. And guess what the ID of nil is? It's four. And so when there would be a nil object and you'd try to call the because you thought it was a user object and you call user.id normally. If the object, if the user was nil, you call nil.id and it's four. And it's, it's like, oh, that's Yehuda. So we had these hilarious bugs. We called it the Yehuda, the Yehuda bug. So, so the most prolific contributor is Yehuda, actually, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, he was at one point. At one point. <laughs> so he was associated with the Merb project and he helped bring that over and that then i think paved the way for more ruby projects and you know we were all really embedded in ruby and so that's that's a community that we knew that's where we evangelized it early on that's where projects started to come over and we actually asked the ruby on rails project to come over and they said no this is you know very early on they're like no we can't you know they were using subversion and they had all their systems and everything built up around that and like it just wasn't gonna work and we're like oh all right fine but then like three months after that, they came to us and they're like, we want to move over. And they moved over. And this was, you know, since inception, maybe this was like seven months. This was, I think, shortly after the, the public launch that we did. Seven months or something in, they, they moved over, which was, in retrospect, like a really bold move because GitHub was not very fleshed out. There wasn't like a lot there at the time. But people in the Ruby community were really discovering Git. Like that was the first community that, that moved off, that moved over to Git was the Ruby community. And Ruby on Rails moving over, that was the holy bleep moment. It's like, oh wow, like this is this is a big deal. Like there's, I don't know, at least thousands of programmers using Ruby on Rails for legit stuff. And like we gotta make this thing work for that. And that was that was huge. Yeah, I mean, that was fail whale time. So that was Twitter was all Ruby, I remember back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, there were big companies that were being built uh, with Ruby, with Ruby on and Ruby on Rails. So it was like legit stuff, and um, and that was huge. That was definitely a moment of that was a big moment in GitHub history because that brought over then the rest of the Ruby community because people are like, oh, geez, if Ruby on Rails is using this, then like I got to get on board. I got to figure this out. So that was that was probably the biggest inflection point from a or the earliest inflection point from an open source perspective. Um, yeah, and then for sure. when did the floodgates open for all these other like? I mean, in looking back from my perspective, I'm like, yeah, I know if I was ever going to start an open source project, I'd go to GitHub. And I'm trying to think of like what I would do before that. And the answer is SourceForge, I guess. But I never did anything with SourceForge. So I don't even know. Like <laughs> The consolidation and the, the social aspect that GitHub brought to the open source community, did you think that it was going to like go bonkers and like these massive, massive, amazing projects were going to 
come out of there? Did you, did you know this was going to happen or was this just like insane? Well, I think at first we didn't know anything was going to happen, but when things started happening and Ruby on rails came over, I think we were like, yeah, like let's go get everyone. Everyone should be on GitHub. That was the goal. It seemed like it could happen because the alternatives were terrible. Yeah, I'm trying to remember SourceForge. I don't really. SourceForge was a disaster even then. I mean, it, it became it became progressively even more disastrous after that. And they started, you know, pu- pushing download links and malware. And man, it, it was it became very dark in in the SourceForge history. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, no. And we, you know, we would we would reach out to projects and and talk to them and be like, hey, what do you need? We'd love you to be on GitHub. Like, what can we do for you? Can we help you import? into Git. Because, you know, I mean, getting your history over was a big deal. So we built tools that would help people migrate over. We, My favorite of all time is one of our April Fool's jokes. You know, April Fool's is always terrible, right? Like that's the day that you just stay off the internet because everything's everything's fake and dumb and, and like whatever. You don't want to be that idiot that thinks something is real and gets excited about it. And then everyone's like, you know, that's, you know, it's April Fool's, right? And you're like, oh. So we as we thought everything from scratch, we wanted to do something that was better for April Fool's. So Scott Chacon had this notion that he was going to build this subversion bridge for Git and that we would release that uh, for, for GitHub. And so on April Fool's, for whatever year that was, probably 2009 or something, he was like, we had this blog post and we're like, GitHub now does subversion. Or we have, you know, it's like SVN hub or something. Which was hilarious, right? Because we spent all our time talking about how terrible Subversion was. So we we're like, now you can use Subversion to to like check out a repository and work on it and make your commits and and get them back into your repository. Ha ha! Right? And that was the blog post. And it was like, and here's the here's the 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 URL or whatever the connection string was in order to pull your repository from GitHub and have it turn into a Subversion repository. And it's like, you should try this on your repository, right? And, and it worked. He, he built it and it worked. It was like a working thing. It was real. And everyone, it just blew everyone's mind. Because it was an April Fool's joke, but it was actually real. So that was then like the bar for April Fool's jokes. Like it had to be that good if we were going to do future April Fool's jokes. I mean, I remember, I re- Mark, you remember that, right? I remember when that came out, I was like also like exactly what you just described, confused. I'm like, wait, like these are normally just joke blog posts by companies this thing actually works and i think it like it, i think it might even still be in github right now like as a thing I mean, there's probably people using it tom i well i know and then people started they're like oh we can use this as a way to transition from using subversion to using git and i think right. i think you're probably right i mean it you know was improved over time but i think it probably is still there that's pretty cool well i i just have to say i'm speaking on the behalf of the kubeless community um, GitHub is dope. We all love it. And good job. And good job to all the co-founders and everybody. And it's it's really cool to know that the origin, like you figure, like it's really cool. I, did, I had no idea that you guys kind of understood what you were trying to do and the goals were there. And it just all kind of aligned very well. Um, I could go on for 10 more hours trying to hear some cool GitHub stories, <laughs> but we can talk about some of the other stuff you're up to. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about Jekyll. I mean, you did Jekyll. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about Jekyll, and then maybe we can skip forward to some of the newer stuff you're working on. Yeah, Jekyll was fun. So that's another one of these scenarios where I was frustrated. So I was using WordPress for my blogs for many years. You know, I used movable type and all kinds of other stuff in my, in my blogging past. 
And I'd have them on random servers, hosted at random places, and then I'd blog for a while and I'd forget about them. And then those companies would like shut down my server and delete my whatever because I wasn't paying attention. And so I kept losing my blog content, which I was very unhappy about. Or I'd get like a database dump and then I'd have to like recreate it somewhere else. And it was it was just horrible. Like all that ceremony around keeping my blog working with just felt really ridiculous. So I had the notion that if I could write my blog in, I think it was probably textile at the time. Do you remember textile? When textile was, when it was like the textile versus markdown war. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So originally it was probably textile, but whatever. So I was writing, I was like, what if I could just write my blog as text files in a Git repository? Then I would never lose them because everything that I ever put on GitHub will be there for the rest of my life and it will never be lost. That would be cool, right? But how am I going to take these textile and markdown files and turn them into a website and push them up. And there was like one or two kind of static site generators out there at the time that I looked at and they were not super what I wanted. And I was like, okay, I could just write a simple Ruby script that takes markdown files and smushes them into a like template and then creates HTML pages. And then if I could take that Git repository and get that online really easily, that would be cool. So we we were talking about this and we're like, what if what if there was a system where you could like get arbitrary Git repositories and have it like published for you? Like that'd be neat, right? Like if you could just take a GitHub repository and be like, take what take everything that's in this repository and just shove it into whatever web server. Like that's that is pretty simple. But you need to be able to do more than that. You need to be able to like what if you could push up the repository and then run the the converter on the server side. So you didn't even have to run the converter locally. Like that would be extra cool. So I was working on this, this what became Jekyll, the little static site converter for my own blog. And I, so I created it. And then we were, I think we were at the same time, like noodling with the GitHub pages idea. And I was like, hey, I wrote this thing. Like, what if we included this by default? And then every repository that you put on GitHub pages will just be run through Jekyll. And if it doesn't look like it's, you know, it'll only convert when it's in this sort of Jekyll format or whatever. So it'll leave, if you have a bunch of static files there, it'll just leave them alone and publish them. But if you have the Jekyll style, you know, directory set up and whatever, then it'll just convert them for you automatically. And that would be a cool way for me and for other people to make a blog or, or you know, every, every open source project needs, a, needs like a website, right? So let's make it easy for people to do that by just doing that, right? And then you could have a, a GH pages branch on your repository. So all these ideas kind of came together and became GitHub pages. And it became powered by Jekyll because I had built that for myself and kind of was like, what if we did this, right? And then we just did that. And that's the reason that Jekyll became popular, right? Nobody would use Jekyll if it wasn't, if it hadn't been part of GitHub pages. But if you wanted to leverage GitHub pages and have free hosting for your open source project, you could use Jekyll for free. I don't know. It just it all just sort of came together beautifully. It's just another one of those things that that was just such a satisfying sort of programming journey. Yeah, I think it's like the early implementations. You know, like uh, like not only in Kubernetes, but really popular in the Kubernetes ecosystem right now is like the concept of GitOps, right? Where you have all of the declarative manifests to say, "Here's what I want to deploy." Just push them to a repo, and then you have something that's pulling that repo or a webhook or some mm-hmm. sort of a. a you know, an interface there to get it actually deployed to the cluster. And I mean, it's really Jekyll, it sounds like like the same idea for like your blog. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember the discussions that we had around this. Like there was, we were talking about like, someone may have been like, is, would there be a way for me to SCP my, or whatever, SFTP my, or use FTP to like get some f- additional files up to GitHub or something to, and then, or, or maybe we're talking about like hosting, like web page hosting uh-huh. as a thing we could offer. And someone was like, we could, you know, we could just have it be, have an FTP server and then people could FTP their files up for their website and, and it would work. And then we're like, why would we use FTP when we have Git? <laughs> it was right, just like, right. oh, that's a good point. Um, and then I, that idea really, then I think for people like that, let people think that way. I'm just like, oh, Git is a transfer protocol. And if I already have repo hosting, like that next step of just taking those files and publishing them, right? And now you push to publish. Like that was, you know, what we called it, push to publish. Yeah. And that idea, right, became all of like Git ops. And it's like, oh, like what else could you do if you lit you know sort of paid attention to when a repository was being pushed to github like you could trigger all kinds of stuff yeah like heroku can come out and like all these different like like yeah like it's it becomes the source of truth and it just it's it's such a powerful concept actually i'm I'm actually curious too like jekyll like where did the name come from for jekyll jekyll was originally called i think autoblog because that was you know when you come up with a project and you're like all right i gotta i gotta name my directory something and that was like the first thing I thought of. Which was Jekyll like, is a better name than Autoblog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything you've said has been super impressive, but that was that was not impressive, Tom. So no, that was yeah. a terrible name. Well, at least I recognized it was a terrible name. Anyway, so then so I was like, all right, I can't call this Autoblog. That's a terrible name. So I need to come up with something else. And I like, I don't know, whatever. I just I let my brain do whatever my brain does, and it just suggests ideas for things. And I was like, it's like a, you know, it's transforming one your blog in one format to another format what other kinds of things transform well there's the story of dr jekyll and mr hyde and you know the the former is like all straight-laced kind of doctor and then he converts into this like monster creature mr hyde and so that's like a blog you know it's all straight-laced in the markdown format and then you convert it into a monster of a website that's super awesome and and so like what if i just called it jekyll and i looked and you know what is anything else called jekyll no i don't know good enough ship it (laughs) (laughs) well that's a good name um i will say that at some point in your career if you want to do a follow-up and you called hyde i think we all support that i don't know what it would be. <laughs> so there is a Hyde project, which was like, um, it was a different language. It wasn't Ruby, but it was essentially a clone of Jekyll in, in something else. I don't know. Go look it up. Go look up what Hyde is. But someone came out with Hyde, I think, pretty quickly thereafter. <laughs> so moving on, like the, another project, I think that we, we use pretty regularly, um, project, um, maybe it's just a spec. I'd love to hear how you think about it. Actually, is Semver, Semver.org. I think you created that document. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So that that actually comes more out of the PowerSet days than the GitHub days. I mean, I I wrote that down while at GitHub. I can't remember what if there was a specific thing that I was frustrated with, but definitely at PowerSet we had PowerSet was doing some ridiculous things with versioning internally. So like every package that we used was versioned, and this was like everything. Like every package across all package managers were rolled up into this super package manager. That could package and you could specify dependencies on like everything that everything was using, which was pretty cool. The problem though was you'd get into these scenarios where something would kind of over specify a dependency on something, and now you've got different 
different things you want to use specifying different version of dependencies and now you can never like resolve them and now you can never use these two different things together anyway so i wrote about i, I was like this is frustrating it's frustrating that we have versions but that they don't mean anything so that when people make releases they just are like i don't know what does it feel like does it feel like a major version kind of thing does it feel like a minor version kind of thing did people even know what like a pat like what there was no rigor around it, it didn't mean anything mm-hmm. not really right it was you know a.b.c but they didn't really have defined meanings and that was really frustrating because then you'd get someone like rolling a major when they really shouldn't and now you're like ah now I, ugh, now these two things aren't going to work together anymore anyway it was super annoying and frustrating so i sat down and i was like there's got to be a better solution to this there's got to be we could at least agree on like what the different parts of the versions mean, right? Like at minimum, we could do that. So I sat down and I wrote some simple document about like what major, minor, and patch should mean, which seemed to me to make sense, and how people were kind of supposed to use it, but couldn't agree on, and just wrote it down. And then I don't even remember. I can't remember why I did that. It wasn't something that was useful to us at GitHub at the time. I don't think. Just a just a mental exercise and frustration at version numbers i was probably probably someone released something as a minor that that was like a major breaking change and i was like what are you doing Ugh, enough yeah i write this document so i I wrote this ember document and started distributing it and talking about it at conferences and stuff and you know it had kind of a slower start i think but then a couple of projects started using it i think the the main the only reason that anyone cares about semantic versioning now i think is because npm took it up and was like, okay, sure, let's just tell everyone to use semantic versioning, and then like everyone's lives can at least be marginally better, right? Because like the the, the real value is you just you, you take your risk tolerance and you say, I'll take patch versions, I'll take minor, ver- I'll take major versions, whatever my risk tolerance is. I don't need to think about that anymore because I trust that you, package publisher, are honoring the contract here that like lists what each of those versions are going to contain and what they won't contain. Right. Well, I mean, why even have a version number of that nature if you're not? Like, why not just start at one and count up? Like, you know, if you're going to have three separate bits of a version, like, <laughs> they should mean something. Yeah. I don't know. It just seemed dumb that they didn't. Yeah. There's stuff like Calver now, which, you know, it's, it's interesting, but like, it, like, it doesn't make some of the same contracts with us. And like, you know, in Kubernetes, um, you know, Kubernetes itself does not, it's not really Semver compliant. Like we're at one dot, you know, I don't know, 25 or 26 right now, but, you know, like there's stuff added and removed with different minor versions if you if you compare it to a semver spec yep. but like a lot of a lot it is it is really popular and commonly used in like the in the ecosystem now i think that the patch the patch at the patch level i think kubernetes is good but at the major version level it's horrible i'm pretty sure yeah but anyways but we don't have to talk about that i like semver we use semver at shipyard we love semver the challenge is that Semver was really sort of designed when I wrote it. It was talking about libraries, not like giant mm. frameworks. It's it's kind of, you know it's much more difficult to version a giant framework or something like a web browser, right? You look at something like Chrome and you're like, could we semantically version that? It's like I don't know because to, to to use Semver for real, you need to specify what your public API is. Like otherwise, the versioning means you know semantic versioning doesn't mean anything. If you don't have a sort of rigorously defined public API, or at least some way for someone to decide whether a certain way that they're using the software is supposed to be part of the public API or not, then you can't really ever say anything about versioning from a Semver perspective. And what it means is that you end up bumping your major version a lot because you're constantly 
breaking something that you would consider part of the public API. And so this was something, so another project that I'm working on now, Redwood JS, JavaScript Web Framework, we sat down and we're like, how rigorously do we want to follow Semver? And I said, we should probably follow it as rigorously as possible, given that I wrote the spec. So, but that means something. What that means is we're going to ship major versions fairly often, which we do. So we're already on version major version three, and Redwood is only two years old, two and a half years old. And it's and you know, the first entire year of that was getting to version one. And so we've released, you know, we release a major version every couple of months. Because if you want to follow the spec and you're moving fast and you don't want to, you know, build up infinite amounts of cruft in your API, then you have to deprecate things. You have to break things that you said were part of the public API. And when you do that and you're following Semver for real, you have to bump the major version. And so you have to be okay with that. And so there's another blog post I wrote, which is called, I believe, something about your major version numbers are not precious or something, right? It's just like, look, get over being afraid to bump your major version. If you need to communicate to your users that you broke backwards compatibility on literally anything that you count as part of your public API, then bump the major version so that people know. And yes, it means that you're going to run through your major versions more frequently than you feels comfortable. But who cares? They're numbers. Guess what? You could be version 9,622 and nobody would care as long as you were communicating what you were doing with your project via that number. The only problem is that you get to not use that as your giant marketing number anymore. You don't get to be like, oh, version five. Let's have a giant you know, publicity around it. And so what we solve, the way that we solve that with Redwood is that we have sort of a, a thing that lives above all of that, which should call the, the epic or epoch, depending on how you want to pronounce this word, E-P-O-C-H. And that, that then is totally separate. And that's just a marketing term. And we name those after, for Redwood, we name them after uh, national parks in the United States. So right now we're on the Arapaho uh, epic. Moving forward, you are now working on some new cool open source stuff. Tell us what is Redwood. Tell us about about that a little bit. Yeah. So Redwood JS is a, an open source uh, JavaScript and TypeScript web application framework that is sort of like Rails, right? So if you're if you've used Ruby on Rails before, you want a full stack inclusive, batteries included, opinionated framework for building a web application, then Redwood might be really good for that. So the basic technology stack that we work with is React for the front end. Use GraphQL to talk from the front end to the back end. Uh, So your back end ends up being a GraphQL API, essentially. And then you use Prisma to talk to your database. And this is all in JavaScript or TypeScript. And then it it integrates testing. So there's a whole testing framework integrated and sort of through the whole front end, back end, you can test, you can mock out your GraphQL API. It includes Storybook. All of this stuff is set up and configured out of the gate so that you don't have to do all of that grunt work to get it working. And so if you're working on a startup, so we, we really like this for startups. So people who are building companies that are going to need all of this support and are probably going to eventually have multiple clients because GraphQL, there's some additional overhead with GraphQL. But if you're going to have a web client, you know, you're going to have a web app and you're going to have a mobile client and maybe you're going to have a command line tool or something. If you're going to have all of these things, writing your API once instead of writing it, writing your web app, and then having to be like, oh, now we're going to have a mobile client. So now let me now spin up a GraphQL API or a fully separate REST API or something. Being able to write your GraphQL API once is some additional overhead up front, but it saves you a lot of time in the long run 
by having a single API that now is your one source of sort of communication truth. So these are learnings that came out of a startup that I did with uh, Scott Chacon uh, called Chatterbug, which is a language learning startup. We were using a, a stack that was similar to this, but we we're having all kinds of problems. It was annoying, and like there were no best practices defined in like how you use these things together, or just the fatigue of having to choose the technologies. Like, what am I going to use for CSS, and what am I going to use for my protocol, and what are blah blah blah. There's millions of choices that you would have to make. How am I even going to lay out my directories and files on the file system? Right, like React doesn't care. There is no sort of best practice for that. You're on your own. Figure it out. You know, if you use Create React app, like everything else is up to you. It's very fatiguing, and you do a tremendous amount of integration work. So we do all of that for you. Yeah, not only is it fatiguing, it's it's generally not differentiating. You just need to like. It's so hard to make those right decisions early on, and like you're you're putting effort into not creating Chatterbug when you're like thinking about these problems. Exactly. Right. Focus on your core value as a business, not on trying to wrangle your stack into it. Or, you know, if you're like, I want to use store, you know, you start to get bigger, you have a dedicated design team. You're like, I want to integrate Storybook. Guess what? Some engineer is now going to spend a week trying to get Storybook to work properly with another random collection of technology you've strung together. Like it's just wasted time. So we're like, what if we do that for you? What if we build that? And I hadn't built a web framework before, so I wanted to try that out. And it's been illuminating <laughs> right and the other thing is is like stack overflow and seo can cause major problems for your project because something might be popular but it's kind of outdated when it comes to like how to do these things and then someone that has worked with mark personally i can attest that he's always got to use the latest and greatest whatever <laughs> um and you know there's not a good way to there's not good established practices so, you know, you got to you got to figure it out yourself. So, why are people doing this over and over again? Okay, I have a little bit of a specific question cuz I and this is just a little embarrassing that I don't actually know this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Can you explain to me the difference between Prisma and GraphQL or like how does that relationship work? I'm just looking at the Redwood JS site and I'm a little confused as to what the difference between Prisma and GraphQL? I mean, I, I kind of know, but I think this might be helpful for folks that are listening. Sure. So Prisma is like a ORM, object relational mapper, although it doesn't really do much with the object side. Basically, it's how you query your database from your backend. Okay. That's Prisma, right? So in the Ruby world, that would be like Active Record. Okay. Is is what is what takes care of that, right? So that's that's taking the place of writing raw SQL queries. Prisma will construct the SQL queries for you from your nicer JavaScript-y kind of way of using the ORM. Mm. So that's Prisma. And then GraphQL is how you request data from the front end to the back end or request you know, a change to occur. And there, that's, you know, that's Facebook's thing. It's very robust technology. It's all typed. That's GraphQL. So that's how your client, right? So your React client is shipped in a bundle to the browser. Your browser executes that. That bundle, that, that JavaScript code, that front-end React code, will request data from the back-end via GraphQL. The back-end now will use Prisma to get data from the database, format it or do whatever it needs to do, and then send that back over GraphQL to the client. Uh, okay, I think I, I, I don't know GraphQL well. I was in the impression that you use GraphQL and then you don't even have to touch your database, but maybe that there's some automatic GraphQL Postgres tool that I'm thinking of. There are a variety of ways that you can make an automatic GraphQL interface to your database, but it's very restrictive. You're, you end up having like, all right, you can do basic kind of CRUD 
operations, but if you want to customize it or do custom business logic, which of course you're going to want to do if you're doing anything custom or complex at all, then you're like, well, how, how do I do that? So that's where Redwood solves that problem. There's a whole backend where you write your resolvers in GraphQL parlance um, to, to handle all of the backend logic. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just a little confused. I thought GraphQL replaces the database, but anyways. No, I mean, it can. In certain circumstances, and many people have tried to make this work, and a lot of databases and, and various companies will allow you to attempt to do that, which is great for the first 10 minutes. And then you're like, how do I do this thing? You're like, oh, well, you're on your own. So Tom, like most of your other stuff that you've created was in in Ruby and Redwood's in JavaScript. Is there is it just the ubiquity of JavaScript was driving that or was there a different reason that you decided, oh, I'm going to make this in JavaScript? Yeah, mostly it was what we were using at Chatterbug. We were like building things with React. So we had at Chatterbug, it was um, the front end, the back end was Rails. So we built it in Ruby on Rails. That's what we knew. Rails is great. And then we started building more and more of the front end for that in React. And so we, re- we weren't using Ruby's templating stuff as much. We were just kind of delivering data structures to React from the Rails land, and then the React stuff would execute on the client. And, and then we started, because we had a mobile client, so we built a whole GraphQL uh, API for that in Ruby. So that was a Ruby backend that provided the GraphQL API on the front end, and then the JavaScript React code would consume that GraphQL API, or sorry, the mobile client would consume that. So now we had a GraphQL API, and then we're like, well, why don't we just have our web application also consume that GraphQL API? So, and GraphQL works really well with React, the way that it kind of thinks about the world. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of building that. So it's like we were assembling this whole technology stack, but we were using two different languages. It was like, all right, we got to write Ruby over here, and we got to write JavaScript or TypeScript over here. And so Redwood came out of that kind of bifurcation of being like, well, why why don't we just use JavaScript to TypeScript for everything? Then we only need TypeScript developers and they can do the whole thing, right? And we don't have these two different languages. And Node is pretty great. And there's lots of people that know JavaScript and TypeScript. Way more people know that than know Ruby. And so that was kind of part of the core concept was like, can we do this all in a single language? It seems like you're just tackling some pretty cool problems after pretty cool problems. What else are you working on right now, like professionally? Like, obviously, you're, you're not GitHub anymore. You avoided working for Microsoft yet again. Yep, twice. You don't <laughs> want to work for Microsoft. We get that. We know that. <laughs> Which, by the way, I just have to say a call out. Microsoft has gotten, like, from when this all started, um, our internet world, to now, Microsoft is great, uh, especially in the CNCF stuff. Um, but so I'm not actually being negative about Microsoft, which is ironic. Microsoft is great. I love them. Nadella completely changed that company. I'm a fan. Right? It's so it's so weird that I don't have negative things to say about Microsoft. It's it's, <laughs> it's very it's very jarring for me. But what else? I mean, so okay, so obviously you you created GitHub. You you've done so many cool things. What are you doing now? Like, what is your day job? Um, we're going to get to your side project at the end. But what is your day job today? Like, what are you doing? How are you? As I like to say, um, what are you doing with your rocket money? <laughs> uh, you know, like you, you, you had the big exit and now you're doing some pretty cool stuff. I, I know there's some pretty interesting philanthropy that you're doing that I think we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's other stuff you're doing as well. So just give us kind of like what's a day in the life of Tom, um, maybe a week in the life of Tom these days. 
Well, I guess there's three main categories of things that I'm doing right now. So one of them is Redwood. So I spent a lot of time with the Redwood team and we have a core team of about 20 people and several hundred contributors. So that project is its own sort of, I mean, it's not a company, but we sort of behave as if it's a company and I do pay people to work on it. We have a, a core team of people that are that are working on it full time. So I do spend a fair amount of time on Redwood because that's very interesting to me. I also spend a lot of time doing angel investing, uh, though I'm trying to dial that back a little bit to spend more time doing actual projects. Um, so I angel invest, I do mostly seed round in developer tooling companies, getting a little bit more into AI kinds of companies, and then doing a lot of climate, trying to get more into climate tech investing. So, so that's through Preston Warner Ventures is the name of that entity. So I do a lot of that. And then we have a philanthropic organization, a foundation called 128 Collective. That is, a, we have a staff of about 10 people. And we do a lot of grant work and political work around climate change. So we're trying to tackle one of the largest problems of our day, an existential problem for the human race, trying to move the needle with our resources. So it's direct grant work to organizations that are working on climate change, but increasingly more through politics, as that's the kind of the largest lever focused mostly in the United States. And we do some international work as well. Um, and so I spend a fair amount of time with the team there uh, working on that as well. So those are kind of the three main buckets. And you can go to PrestonWarnerVentures.com or you can go to 128collective.org if you want to read more about uh, the two of those endeavors. Or you can go to RedwoodJS.com if you want to learn more about Redwood. So I'd say those are the three largest buckets of how I spend my time. Yeah, and we're going to put the links in the show notes as well, so everyone check it out below. Um, we're, we're coming up on time here, but tell us a little bit about the climate tech you're working on, because I feel like that's got to be interesting. So I just, I just want to know a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the climate tech side. Yeah, there's some really, there's some really neat stuff going on out there. So there's a company called Moat hydrogen. So green hydrogen is going to be a part of our future more and more. And you want to be able to produce this hydrogen in a in, in a clean way. And you also want to sequester carbon dioxide. These are two things that you'd really like to do. And if you could do them together, that would be even better, right? Let's sequester CO2 and let's create green hydrogen. So this company called Moat Hydrogen, who we invested in, has a process where they take wood scraps. So let's say you've got cleanup that you're doing in a forest or just your routine sort of maintenance along the sides of roads. And you've got a bunch of scrubby, brushy wood materials that aren't going to be used for anything. They're just going to go in a giant pile and rot and put all that CO2 after they rot back into the air. Moat can take this wood waste and sort of burn it slowly. It's not exactly like that, but they have this proprietary process where it's it's kind of like burning it slowly. So it's self-powered. You don't have to put any additional energy into it to run this process. You self-powered, it's called gasification. Basically, you're turning this material into a gas, and those gases turn out to be carbon dioxide and hydrogen, and you can separate them and collect them. So you can collect the CO2, and you can pump it underground into giant reservoirs or old oil wells. And it'll stay there. And so you can you can push CO2 back underground. So that's one of the ways that you can do CO2 sequestration. So they can do that. And then they can take the hydrogen that they've produced in this green process, and they can sell that. So there's a business model on the hydrogen side. There's a sequestration model on the CO2 side. So that's a really interesting technology to me. They're 
early stages working on designing and building their first demonstration plant to do that, which will be an uphill battle and very complex. But if they can figure it out and scale it, I think there's a huge potential there. Another quick one that I'll mention is called RenewWell. This company uh, solves the problem of all of these not abandoned, but sort of like unused oil wells. You know, you see the oil derricks that go back and forth all over Texas and various parts of California. Well, those eventually run out of oil and then the oil company has to eventually cap them, which they hate doing because it costs money. And that involves pouring a bunch of concrete into them and it's it's just it's a, an expensive process. So there's thousands of these around the United States, thousands, thousands and thousands. And they're leaking methane all the while. And so... Um, this company, Renewell, will sign a contract with the oil company and say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to convert your oil well. And these oil wells are generally, you know, it's a, it's a hole that's drilled in the earth that could be thousands of feet deep, maybe 5,000, 6,000 feet deep. And what they're going to do is they're going to assemble a series of metal tubes and connect them together and put them down into this well, and then connect them to a cable, and that cable will be hooked to a motor slash generator. And when there's excess electricity on the grid, they're going to use that electricity and lift this giant metal cylinder weight into the air. And when the grid needs more electricity, they're going to use the falling weight of this giant metal cylinder that could be thousands of feet long, that's a very heavy metal cylinder, to run the generator and produce electricity and put it back on the grid. And so this becomes an energy storage solution, which we'll need more and more of as we transition to more renewable energy sources like solar and wind, which are sporadic and need to be paired with energy storage in order to not have to have coal and gas plants sitting around to provide the, the quickly needed variations in, in how much demand there is on the grid. Wow, that's super cool. I had not heard of that one at all. Um, yeah, no, I, I a long time ago, a really smart climate person that I was friends with told me that we can solve the battery problem if we dig a huge hole the size of Texas and then we just put water <laughs> underneath it and like raise it and lower it um, as the energy is being used. Um, this sounds like a little bit more practical version of that, um, but that's really cool. Um, and so is the so is the other one. Um, we're going to put the show notes to uh, Tom Preston Warner or a link to that, and so people can check that out. Um, I would like to ask you a million questions about more of the climate tech stuff you're doing, but I think we're kind of out of time here. We did say that you always do a side project. I think that's super interesting. You want to tell us real quick what your side project is, and then we'll wrap up? Yes. So for the past couple of months, I've been wanting to get into electronics more. I, I did a lot of electronics as a kid, but modern electronics is so much more awesome and interesting. Like I'd solder and make my own circuit boards and, and do things as a kid. I'd tinker. And it's been many years since I've gotten back into that. So I wanted to make a project that would allow me to get back into electronics and really like learn the modern stuff. And so at GitHub, one of our guys was named John Maddox, and he created this project called Magic Cards, which was a, an RFID reader where he would print cards, RFID cards, that you know, the size of a credit card, and you would be able to print album art, like music album art on this card, and then you could scan it on this RFID reader, and it would talk to this web app that he had built that would then correlate it to a, an album for you know that corresponded to the album art that was on the card. And then it would play that music on his 
like Sonos speakers or whatever he had. And I thought that was really cool. Like make music physical again, bring it back into the physical realm. You could have an album full of these cards that had this artwork and you just scan it and it would talk to whatever his home automation system was and, and play the music. I thought that was really cool. And so I wanted to do kind of a modern take on that, that didn't need a, an intermediary website to make the correlation and use NFC cards. So now we have NFC and NFC cards can hold data. You can write custom data to them where an RFID card is just an ID. You don't get to write anything to it. It's just a kind of a number. NFC cards you can write to. And so what I've created is a system that I call Vunda cards because I'm super creative that way. So I've created a system. So you write a, a music URL to an NFC card, and then you scan it on this device that I've built using a ESP8266 microcontroller. And it then talks to, right now you have to have a home assistant set up in your home. So a home assistant is an open source home automation kind of server tool. It's really neat. It, it integrates with like zillions of things. One of those things is Sonos. And so I have this device, you scan the NFC card, it reads the URL off of it, it talks to Home Assistant and tells it to play that music on a Sonos speaker of your choosing, right? So I wrote the code that, that kind of runs both sides of that. And then I created this nice wooden walnut box that has a, a, a knob as well. So this is the other thing that, that Maddox's thing didn't have was it was just, you'd scan and that was it. If you wanted to adjust the volume, you've got to like go find a volume knob for your system somewhere or you got to pull out your phone or whatever. I wanted it so you didn't have to use your phone at all. I have one of these in our main bathroom, for instance. I listen to music when I take a shower and while I'm getting ready in the morning. And I hate having to pull out my phone to select music and select a speaker because we've got like 30 Sonos speakers in our house. They're like in every ceiling. Like they're everywhere. There's zillions of them. It's amazing. But it's super annoying to have to go into your phone and open Spotify and then find the music you want and then play it and then make sure it's got the right speaker selected because maybe you were on a different speaker earlier. And the whole thing just makes me not want to use the system at all. And it's like, what, what music am I going to play? I don't I have to like think of an album or something to play. Like it's too much, too much work. So with the cards now, I have a little stand that has nine different NFC cards on it, each with an album. And I have my cards reader on the vanity. And I grab one of those cards and I scan it on my reader. And it has a volume knob as well. So I can turn the volume up and down right there because the volume's never exactly where you want it. And then when I'm done... I hit the volume knob, click. The volume knob is also a push button and that pauses the music. And when I come in the next day and I wanna to listen to the same thing, I hit that button again and it starts playing that music. So with literally like one second of work, I can be listening to music in my bathroom again. And it, it makes a huge difference and it's been super fun to work on. So I'm gonna open source it all. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting very close. I have now produced several of the production level version of this device. Um, so I'm going to get that out uh, really soon. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll have something out, I think. That's my goal. And open source, you could go build your own, though it's I have bought probably $5,000 worth of CNC mills and laser cutters and soldering irons and breadboards to make this happen. So I'm not sure if that you'll want to build your own, but the instructions will be there if you want to do so. And if there's enough interest and people want to buy these, maybe I'll figure out how to produce these and sell them. That's really cool. That it, it actually does sound like a cool device. Again, solving like a problem that you have, an inconvenience here, and make it make it a little bit better. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, in in five years, when like this is some multi billion dollar company, um, <laughs> yeah. we'll just all laugh about how Tom was in front of this one again. Like, oh, typical, typical Tom. 
All right. Well, look, this was super fun having you on. Really enjoyed this conversation and, and understanding about the origin story and, and what you're working on now and just kind of the way you think about things. I, I really appreciate hearing it and I, I feel confident that the audience is going to as well. Um, but I think we're at time. Mark, I think, I think we got to wrap up. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, Tom Preston Warner, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, there's a whole lot of links that'll be in the show notes. And my personal note to Tom, besides all the cool GitHub open source stuff, is uh, please save our planet. Um, this winter has been very scary in New York. It's, it's more like spring. So keep it up, Climate Tech. <laughs> Use that rocket money. Thanks for coming on, Tom. You bet. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you chatting. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, head over to kublist.com. I'm Mark Campbell, CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com. My co-host is Benji DeGroote, CEO at Shipyard, where they enable isolated ephemeral environments on every code change for companies of all sizes. Check them out at shipyard.build. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And finally, don't forget to sign up for the Kublist Weekly Newsletter and read previous issues at kublist.com.